14. In ordinary circumstances they should have been within the range of all. The peasant could no longer afford to pay even for these cheap luxuries. The rich Spaniards, the employers of labor, were now no longer on the spot to give out work and to pay wages. In the industrial confusion the peasant only on the rarest occasions found anyone capable of occupying his labor. He was thus reduced to attempt the formation of a self-contained establishment of his own, a matter which, in the majority of cases, was sufficiently difficult. Nevertheless, the peasant contrived to support himself on the maize and vegetables which he grew in the neighborhood of his hut and by the pigs which he reared. He knew well enough, nevertheless, that, although he might expect to maintain a precarious existence by this means, he could anticipate nothing whatever beyond. It was many years before the financial benefits of the rebellion filtered through to these humble classes. The greater part of the peasants, being fond of show and amusement, were royalist at heart, and were more adapted for a monarchy than for a republic, as is usually the case with folk of a peaceful and tractable disposition. They were not consulted in the matter at all. They had grown on occasion under the monarchy, and on the first establishment of the republic they continued to groan from an even greater cause. The matter was very different with the superior classes of colonists. The cause for which they had fought was of vital importance to them, and by the change from the status of a colony to that of a republic they had gained everything. Before, they had been mere colonials, slighted by the Spaniards on every possible occasion, and permitted no say in public affairs. Now they had leaked at a bound to their proper place, and were at the head of their new state. With pardonable eagerness they plunged into the campaign of speculation which was now open to them, and many of their number rapidly grew rich. Thus after a time they became employers of labor on a large scale, incidentally solving the labor question of the peasantry of the country. Among brand new states who have yet to prove their worth and importance the intervention of mutual jealousies may safely be counted on. In South America the appearance of these disturbing factors was not long delayed. It was not three years after the last Spanish troops had been driven from South America that war broke out between the republics of Bolivia and Peru. Sucre proved himself as able a leader as ever, and was as successful against his fellow republicans as he had been against the royalist forces. The Peruvians were utterly defeated. As a consequence, the president, Lamar, was banished from his country, and a new official, Gamera, was elected as provisional president. The first war, however, did not succeed in clearing the battle-laden air, and for some while Peru was destined to suffer considerably at the hands of its neighbors. Very shortly after the conclusion of the first war a second broke out between Bolivia and Peru. The day of Sucre was then at an end, and the president of Bolivia was Andrea Santa Cruz. Santa Cruz was a powerful chief of state, a born leader of men, who managed to hold his somewhat wild adherents in check since no man of any other temperament could have succeeded in retaining his post in this age of turmoil and unrest. Santa Cruz proved himself a despot, but in many respects a benevolent despot, who showed an interest in genuine progress, realizing, for instance, the serious disadvantage under which his country labored on account of its lack of an adequate population. He devoted much of his thought and time to the amendment of the state of affairs, which he was inclined to alter somewhat arbitrarily. He urged, for instance, the taxing of celibates and their exclusion from the magistracy in order that their want of patriotism might be singled out and punished, whatever might have been the result of measures such as these, the Bolivians proved themselves sufficiently numerous to defeat the Peruvians once again, Peru was invaded, and Santa Cruz entered Lima as its protector, 
A few years later in 1837 Peru fell into a dispute with Chile on account of the Guano provinces of Atacama and Tarapaca. Peru was again invaded, but eventually the Chileans abandoned the country and returned to their own. After this, no little confusion prevailed in the internal affairs of Peru. Various leaders came, fought, and went, until civil war was followed by a conflict with Bolivia, in the course of which Gamera, the Peruvian president, was killed and the Peruvian forces were totally defeated in 1841. In 1845 there seemed a prospect of improvement in the affairs of the Republic. When Ramon Castilla was elected president, Castilla was a man of strong and progressive views, and commerce began to flourish under his guidance. He was followed by President Echenique, but returned to public life, and succeeded the latter as president after a lapse of ten years, in the course of which considerable official corruption had been shown. In 1864 occurred the first collision with Spain since the conclusion of the War of Liberation. In that year Spain sent out Admiral Pinzon to the Pacific coast in command of three war vessels. The objects of the expedition were avowedly scientific, but it met with a suspicious reception from the first on the Pacific coast. The conduct of Admiral Pinzon decidedly did not tend to allay any anxiety on the part of the Republicans. Both Peru and Chile felt that their independence was endangered, and prepared to resist. On April 14, 1864, the Spanish vessels gave the signal for war by seizing the Chincha Islands. Hostilities, however, were staved off for a while by the action of the Spanish authorities, who stated that Admiral Pinzon had exceeded his instructions. In the meanwhile the capture of one of his smaller vessels by the Chileans had so preyed upon the Admiral's mind that he committed suicide. He was succeeded in his command by Admiral Perija. At the beginning of 1866 war with Spain was officially declared. The Spanish fleet had now been strongly reinforced, and some naval engagements took place between the Spaniards and the allied Peruvians and Chileans, in the course of which the Spanish squadron was repulsed. On April 25 the Spanish vessels, having already attacked Valparaiso, appeared before Callao, and a week later they began vigorously to bombard the town, which returned the fire. In this engagement both land and sea forces suffered considerably. After this the Spanish fleet sailed back to Europe, and the war came to an end. Peace, however, was not declared for two years afterwards. General Prado now became president of Peru, and proved himself an able statesman. Nevertheless, the political disturbances continued, and after a while the rival parties became too strong to permit him to remain in office, and, resigning, he took refuge in Chile. The period which follows is one of great unrest. At the same time, notwithstanding the political disturbances, the commercial and industrial status of Peru was advancing rapidly. The next president who was destined to remain for some while in his seat was Manuel Pardo. He was elected in 1872, and although various revolutions occurred during the tenure of his office, these were successfully crushed by his authority. Indeed, he actually completed his term of office an exceedingly rare occurrence for a president just at that period. Pardo was succeeded by General Prado, who had returned from Chile for the purpose of the election, and proved the popular candidate. So complicated were the internal affairs of the nations at this time that it would be impossible to follow them adequately without devoting various chapters to this purpose alone. One of the blackest events of the period was the assassination of the ex-president Prado who had proved himself a high-minded and efficient leader. This, as a matter of fact, was the act of a dissatisfied non-commissioned officer, and not of any political party. 
During Prado's presidency war broke out between Chile and Peru over the question of the nitrate fields, which were claimed by both countries. Prado being both the president and general-in-chief, took command of the Peruvian army. Although a man of personal courage, he appears to have been utterly hopeless of victory from the start, and in December, 1879, when various disasters had overtaken the Peruvian arms, he abandoned the country, and, taking ship at Cayado, sailed for Europe. The resistance to Chile was continued by Nicolas de Pirola, who, rising in armed rebellion against the constituted authority of Peru, caused himself to be declared president. His efforts, however, did not succeed in stemming the Chilean advance, and the end of the war saw Peru deprived of the nitrate provinces which she had claimed. Bolivia, who had been associated with her as her ally in the struggle, was now reduced to the position of an inland state. Her strip of coastline having been taken away by the victorious Chileans, the history of Peru following on the disastrous war with Chile is one of internal strife, when a host of would-be leaders, each with a following of greater or lesser importance, came into conflict and prevented any settled political action. In 1886 President Andreas Cáceres came into power, and, seeing that the populace of the republic was now exhausted by the continuous state of conflict, he was permitted to rule unchecked until 1890. Cáceres established a species of military dictatorship, and remained the power behind the throne until 1894, when, the acting president having died, he found it necessary to come to the front again, and after some confusion and fighting he was proclaimed president for the second time. In 1895 a revolution occurred, headed by the same Pirola who had distinguished himself in the war against Chile. After some severe fighting the party of Cáceres was defeated, and Pirola, declared president, began to govern in a constitutional fashion. His advent to power marked the end of the political turbulence which had been so prominent a feature of Peruvian history during the latter half of the 19th century. Although the revolutionary movement continued, it had lost its fierce and almost continuous character. Since that period it has become merely intermittent, and thus of secondary consideration, for, following the example of the neighboring and progressive republics of South America, the political strife in Peru has, to a large extent, given way to the practical considerations of industrial and commercial progress. Chapter XXIV The Republic of Paraguay We have seen how Paraguay, having in the early days of the War of Liberation compelled the retirement of the Argentine army commanded by General Belgrano, was left to its own resources. It is said by some that Belgrano, during the intercourse he maintained with the Paraguayans subsequent to the defeat of his force and previous to his definite retreat, contrived to inculcate some ideas of independence into the heads of the officials of the inland province. These seeds of liberty may or may not have borne fruit, but in any case it is certain that public opinion in Paraguay rapidly veered round in favor of independence, and as early as 1811 the Spanish government was replaced by a junta, which consisted of a president, two assessors, and a secretary. The person appointed to the latter office was Don José Gaspar Rodríguez de Francia whose name was destined to become dreaded throughout the length of the republic which was now to establish itself. It was not long before the strong personality of Francia dominated the hood. The history of Paraguay at this period differs widely from those of the more progressive nations surrounding it. In Paraguay a certain opera buff element, together with a series of grimly farcical incidents, continually mingled themselves with some of the darkest tragedies that have been known in any age. From the very start something of the kind had become evident. The members of the Hood, for instance, 
finding their own means insufficient to support the pomp and state which was suddenly thrust upon them, and which they had grown to a love, began to adopt some extraordinary measures in order to maintain their position. Any portable national assets were sold without the least compunction for this purpose, and they even went to the length of compelling state prisoners to purchase their liberty an idea which undoubtedly ranks as one of the most extraordinary schemes for raising money ever employed. Measures such as this constituted a sufficiently ominous beginning, they provided, indeed, and only to true augury of what was to come and from what species of wrongs the unfortunate country was doomed to suffer for generations. In justice to Francia himself it must be said that he took no part in these first minor acts of oppression. His grim and proud nature cared but little for mere matters of pomp and ceremony. Money and possessions, curiously enough, affected him little. Masros, Ranger and Longcamps vouch for it that, having once discovered that he was the possessor of 800 piastres, he thought this sum a great deal too much for a single person, and he spent it. A remedy such as this seems simple enough for an unusual complaint. By the year 1813 all but the most powerful elements of the Junta had been weeded out. The power was now confined to the two remaining members Dr. Francia and his colleague, Fulgencio Yegros. These were now endowed with the titles of consul. Two cruel chairs were specially manufactured for them. These classical seats were covered with leather. On one was the name of Caesar, on the other that of Pompey. It is possible that Francia had some faint smattering of Latin and of Roman history, at all events. He is said to have pounced on the first and eagerly to have taken possession of it. The two consuls began their reign by employing a vast amount of ceremony and form in order to accomplish a few quite arbitrary acts. The majority of these were directed against the Spaniards, who, suffering now from the swing of the pendulum of fate, were as much oppressed as they had formerly oppressed. Indeed. The situation of those Spaniards who still remained in Paraguay was now pitiable in the extreme. Persecuted on all sides by the high officials, they could expect, in the face of an example such as this, scant consideration from the populace. In the year 1814 Francia determined that the time had come when he could dispense with the services of his colleague, Yegros. By means of a coup d'etat he packed the Congress, and succeeded in intimidating his adversaries. As a result, he was named dictator of Paraguay for a period of three years, notwithstanding a counter-move on the part of the military followers of Yegros. This was calmed by Yegros himself. In a moment of considerable generosity this latter pacified the officers and the troops, and thus left the way clear for Dr. Francia. At this period the new dictator again gave evidence of his curiously complex character. Congress, anxious to please the new ruler, whose power of domination had already become so evident, had allotted to His Excellency the dictator an annual allowance of 9.000 piastres. Francia definitely refused to accept more than one-third of this, and, moreover, continued firm in his refusal, alleging that the state was far more in need of money than he. On paper, never was the start of a chief of state's career more fraught with promise than that of Francia's. He had given evidence of despotism, but also of an earnest spirit. No sooner had the reins of absolute power fallen to his lot than he altered entirely the mode of his life. From a comparative liberty he became a man of austere habits, displaying a most extraordinary industry in his attention to the matters of state. His manner, moreover, was affable to poor and rich alike, and the claims of the humblest met with a courteous consideration rare in any state at any time, but doubly amazing in a period of chaos such as was reigning throughout the continent at the time. In 1817 his period of dictatorship expired. It was then that Francia made his supreme effort, 
intrigues, persuasions, and veiled threats strengthened the position which his cautious and cleverly conceived conduct had created for him. Numbers of his creatures now came forward with suggestions. Congress fell into the trap, and Francia was appointed dictator of Paraguay for life. This was the moment for which Francia had waited so patiently and so long, with the last obstacle to his full power now removed. The change in the dictator's conduct was as complete as it was sudden. Had he sat at the right hand of Nero his refinements of tyranny could not have been more successful. In a very short while his methods had terrorized Asuncion. When drive Francia and his Hazar escort rode abroad, the streets through which the cavalcade passade resembled a desert. For anyone who had the misfortune to find himself anywhere near the line of route was set upon and beaten with the flat of their swords by the Hazars for the mere fact of daring to be in the neighborhood of the dictator in a public place. At the outset there were some who protested. The fate of every one of these was, at the lightest, to be flung into dungeons and loaded with massive and torturing chains, following the inevitable progress of tyranny. As time went on Francia's vigilance and cruelty increased, while as the discontent of the populace became evident his suspicions grew more and more on the alert, conceiving the possibility of an assassin lurking behind one of the orange trees with which the streets of the capital were so liberally and beautifully planted, Francia cut them down and it is said that when his horse once shied at the sight of a barrel before a door, the owner of the cask was made to suffer severely on account of the nerves of the dictator's steed. Paraguay gradually became more and more a hermit state under the rule of this despot. It was difficult in the extreme to enter the country, but, having once passed its frontiers, it was harder still to return. Forts were established along the borders, and the rivers were strictly policed. A strict watch was kept on all travelers and none might move from spot to spot without being in possession of a passport especially granted by the dictator. Some there were who attempted to make their way from the now dreaded country through the vast swamps of the Chaco, but death at the hands of the Indians or the teeth of the wild beasts was the usual result. It was inevitable that stagnation of commerce should have ensued, but the traders by this time no longer dared to complain openly. Francia himself, so long as he had the state to govern, cared little whether its people were rich or poor. As for the unfortunate Spaniards in Paraguay, the enactments against them became more and more severe. As evidence of his supreme contempt for these Europeans, Francia issued a decree by which they were forbidden to intermarry with a white woman. This extraordinary measure shows the length to which this strange man carried his tyranny, and how deeply was the hatred of the Spaniard implanted in his queer and grim mind. It is impossible, however, to go fully into the details of Francia's autocratic reign. Incredible as many of these are, the destruction of the church, the secularies aution of the monks, wholesale executions and torturings, the suppression of the post office, and a hundred other acts of irresponsible and childish tyranny these are only some of the episodes which characterized the days of his rule. During all this while the power of the army grew until militarism became rampant militarism, that is to say, instigated by Francia. Since no officer or man of his troops dared move hand or finger unless commanded by the dictator himself, his title was now, Supremo Dictator Perpetuo de la República del Paraguay, Supreme and Perpetual Dictator of the Republic of Paraguay. This he retained until the day of his death, no man daring to dispute for a single instant his perfect right to the title, grim and implacable. He continued his career unchallenged to the last, considering the circumstances. His vitality remained unimpaired for a strangely long period, for Francia died at the advanced age of 80 years, after a virtual reign of nearly 30 years. 
Francia was succeeded by Carlos Antonio Lopez, who showed himself, by comparison, a liberal-minded and progressive ruler. During his reign few events of real importance occurred, although the trading facilities permitted by the new dictator were responsible for the increasing intercourse between Paraguay and the outer world. On the death of Carlos Antonio Lopez the chief office of the state of Paraguay was occupied by his eldest son, Francisco Solano Lopez. Francisco Solano had seen more of the outer world than was usual in the case of the Paraguayan of that period. He had resided in Paris, where he had carried out a diplomatic mission, and where his intelligence had won golden opinions from all those who came into contact with him. Indeed, the impression he had produced on all sides was favorable in the extreme and great things were expected as the outcome of his government in Paraguay. On the death of his father Lopez showed no small sense of initiative, for the only office to which he could assume any shadow of a right to claim at the moment was that of vice president. Acting in this capacity, he obtained immediate control of the army, summoned a meeting of the deputies, and told them it was their task to elect a new president. Seeing that the building was surrounded by troops in the pay of Lopez, the great majority took the hint. Two only of their number did not acclaim Francisco Solano as the new autocrat of Paraguay, and as these two disappeared on the following night, and were never seen again, the ennui of opposition was strongly inculcated from the start. The dictator's full title was, Je Supremo y General de los Exercitos de la República del Paraguay, his familiar title, and the one he most encouraged, was, Supremo, with the power once in his hands. Francisco Solano Lopez changed his tactics as completely and as abruptly as had Francia in his day. Tyranny once more became the accepted order of things. Lopez had brought with him from France his mistress, Madame Lynch, a Parisian of Irish descent, and it was this latter alone who possessed the slightest influence over the new autocrat. Indeed, once firmly established on his throne for his dictator's seat was in reality nothing less Lopez I.I showed a most callous disregard for the lives of any of his subjects, whether great or small. Ever since his visit to France Napoleon had constituted his ideal of manhood, and it was upon the conduct of the great Corsican that he loved to think he modeled his own. Certainly Lopez was utterly free from any dread of Holocaust. In a very short while the prisons had been filled to overflowing, and the red soil of Paraguay grew redder with the blood of hundreds of executions. Once again the barriers began to be set up between Paraguay and the outer world, and once again it became almost impossible for one who had crossed its frontiers to return to his native land, but, since it was the fate of Lopez to have lived in a later age than Francia, the ambitions of this third dictator were correspondingly enlarged, it was not his design ultimately to shut off Paraguay from the rest of the continent, it was his plan rather to cause the frontiers of his country to spread until they had enveloped all the other lands. Thus he considered he was acting in conformity with the true Napoleonic tradition, and also, incidentally, with his own desires and dreams, in order to be prepared for the great day which was to come to Paraguay. The army was increased, trained, and drilled until it became one of the most important and efficient military organizations in the continent. This army was completely and entirely the toy of Lopez. The men were his to be shot or promoted at his slightest whim and the officers were subjected to precisely the same irresponsible but merciless discipline, even at this period in no other country of South America, perhaps, would such a state of affairs have continued, Paraguay, however, as has been explained, differed in its ethics from any of the neighboring states, the population was largely composed of civilized Guarani Indians, 
and the section of this great family in these latitudes had from the earliest days of the continent been noted for its easy-going and somewhat indolent qualities. The result of the intercourse between the Spaniards and Indians had produced a small minority of mestizos, whose enterprise scarcely exceeded that of the natives. The soft and enervating climate was, of course, largely responsible for this, indeed. It was inevitable that a beautiful and lotus-eating land of the kind should have produced inhabitants to match. A few only of the Paraguayans had had the advantage of traveling in Europe, and on their return to their native land its atmosphere very seldom permitted them to remain for long without the local and somewhat demoralizing influences. Had Lopez been content to continue to act as supreme and all-powerful lord of every man and thing within his own frontiers, the affairs of Paraguay enlivened at intervals by those salutary orgies of executions, might have drowsed on indefinitely. For a man of the temperament of Francisco Solano Lopez such comparative repression was impossible. He had dreamed himself emperor of South America, and this he was determined to be. Of all the neighboring countries, Brazil was the first to be alarmed. She had the most reason, since her frontiers ran to the greatest length side by side with those of the land which held the ambitious dictator. Ere Francisco Solano Lopez had reigned two years the inevitable had occurred, arrogance and threats of aggression on the part of the inland state, resentment and profound mistrust on the part of the Brazilian Empire, led to open breach, the pretext lay in the joint interference on the part of Brazil and Paraguay in the internal affairs of Uruguay, which troubled Republic was just then in a more than usually violent state of revolution, Lopez, in a moment of somewhat artificial exaltation protested solemnly against the Brazilian policy as directed against Uruguay. Since this protest was ignored, Lopez resolved on war. He commenced hostilities by the capture of the Marques de Olinda, a Brazilian steamer which conveniently found itself at the moment at Asuncion, on its way up the great river system to the imperial territory of Mato Grosso. The crew and the passengers of the Marques de Olinda were taken ashore as prisoners. These included the Brazilian governor of Mato Grosso, who, together with the great majority of his fellow passengers, was destined never to see his native land again. This decisive act lit up the flames of war, and the most important struggle between the races of its own soil which the continent had ever seen now commenced, for in the end, not only were Brazil and Paraguay involved, but the neighboring states of Argentina and Uruguay as well. Chapter XXV The Paraguayan War Although four states were involved in the struggle, South American historians are unanimous in giving the strife which broke out in 1864 the name of the Paraguayan War. This is appropriate enough, for a number of reasons, one of them being that, after the first invading expedition on the part of the Paraguayan armies, the war was fought out on Paraguayan soil. The capture by the Paraguayans of the Brazilian steamer Marques de Olinda demonstrated to South America that the moment of contest had arrived. The position of the neighboring states was far less satisfactory from a military point of view than that of Paraguay. During the two years of his reign Lopez had steadily continued to prepare his forces for this event. At the time the Paraguayan army was, numerically, the most formidable in South America. It had, moreover, been brought to an unusual degree of efficiency. The condition of the Brazilian forces was very different. In the first place, little heed had been taken to make ready for anything of the kind and another factor which proved greatly to the disadvantage of the fighting material involved lay in the difficulty of communication between Rio de Janeiro and those portions of the great empire which bordered on Paraguay. Thus Lopez's invading army, when it swept through the Brazilian province of Mato Grosso, met with practically no resistance worthy of the name.
and, in the absence of defending troops, it might, undoubtedly, have taken possession of vast tracts of country, and have continued to hold these indefinitely. It was Lopez's bizarre and wild ambition which frustrated his own schemes. A single tide of invasion was not sufficient to satisfy a mind such as his. Gathering together a second powerful army, he determined to strike at the southeastern portion of Brazil in addition to its province of Mato Grosso. In order to effect this he demanded in arrogant tones from Argentina permission for his troops to cross the Argentine province of Corrientes. To this, as neutrals, it was impossible for the Argentines to consent. As a result, Lopez in a fury declared war upon Argentina, and, as though even this did not suffice, he next found himself at grips with the Uruguayan forces, thus Brazil, Argentina, and Uruguay were now leagued together against the armies of the despot Lopez, with a view of alienating the sympathies of the oppressed subjects of the dictator from their tyrannical leader. The allies caused it to be widely proclaimed that the war they were waging was not directed against the Paraguayan people in general. It was against Lopez alone that they were fighting, they asserted. The claim was true enough, since this was in reality the position of affairs. Nevertheless, owing to the methods of Lopez, the proclamation carried far less weight than had been anticipated. The Paraguayan forces now penetrated into the Argentine province of Corrientes, seized the capital, Corrientes itself, and took possession of a couple of steamers the Gleguay and the 25 de Mayo which were anchored in the river opposite to that town. The Paraguayan fleet now held command of the river system upstream of Corrientes. On June 11, 1865, the Allied naval forces, steaming up the Paraná, came into contact with the hostile fleet. A battle was fought, which ended in the defeat of the Paraguayan squadron, which was forced to a retreat, crippled and damaged, to the north. A succession of actions now took place on land, and the Paraguayans, although fighting with a desperate heroism, were gradually beaten back and driven across their own frontiers. At the same time, the army which had invaded Brazil retired in sympathy, and the scene of the war changed to Paraguay itself, which was in its turn invaded by the forces of the Triple Alliance. One of the most sanguinary battles of the war was fought on May 